message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. So before I, uh, before I begin, I just want to, I have to say this because this happens more often than not, and I get to benefit from this knowledge, and I want everybody else to as well. Oftentimes, when I'm preparing to preach, I don't necessarily know what song is going to be sung. I may know who's singing, I may know... Um, a little bit of the prep behind that, but I don't usually know the exact title or the exact lyric in a song. So I have to tell you this. Lance Brown just sang a song about Jerusalem. (laughs) This is just crazy. Today's passage in Zechariah is about the redemption of Jerusalem. He didn't know that. I didn't know what he was going to sing. But I just want you to see what God just did. It's it's hard to uh, hard to describe. So, with that being said, let me introduce today's scripture. Have you ever heard or used this phrase, hindsight is 2020. So clearly, yeah, most of you, if not all of you, have used or heard that phrase. So it has a very distinct meaning. I'm, I'm sure most of you probably know that, what that is as well, but I'll, just for the sake of our time together, let me just describe that phrase. It's how you can always know exactly what you should have done in a given situation once that situation has already happened. In other words, it's always easier to see the best decision when you have to walk through the consequences of a poor decision. Therefore, looking back, you always see with great clarity, right? Well, the further we go into Zechariah's prophecy, the more we see how he's not just being given words about the Messiah, about Christ coming to earth, which he has done already. Behold your king riding on a donkey. Okay, uh, There's been other uh, messianic prophecies within this particular book the 30 pieces of silver, if you recall, from last time, the potter's field. But now we're looking forward even further beyond where we are to that great day, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the final battle. What is going to happen with Israel, with Jerusalem, with Judah? What's going to be there disposition when all that takes place at the end of time. This 
passage today, this chapter speaks directly to those events. And, and let me just say in a, a brief word of foreshadowing, if you were ever curious why it seemed like our country nationally always tried to align itself with Israel and be on their side, I have a feeling this is going to remove any kind of doubt or curiosity about that subject. Because what's going to happen in this 12th chapter of Zechariah, the Jewish people are going to finally realize the terrible mistake that was made in rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And they're going to be filled, overcome with sorrow and weeping when they realize it. So, with that being said, let me read Zechariah chapter 12. And I know I, know I just added this last verse because... Chapter 12, there's a verse, the beginning verse of chapter 13 is actually kind of a hinge because it ends this message in chapter 12, but it also begins chapter 13, so it, it goes with both of them. So I'm going to actually go into the, the first verse of chapter 13 as the final verse of chapter 12. So here's what the Bible says, Zechariah, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord. And let me let me just stop right there for just a second. When I when I read that, thus declares the Lord, there's a description of the Lord coming, and then from there on it's God speaking. Okay? It's God speaking. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. And on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I'll keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, 
I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would speak to our hearts very clearly today. Help us to understand what your word says so we can be obedient for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. So, I suspect you may have kind of detected some things in that text. I hope when we read through it, some particular phrases stood out. But within this text, there's two major divisions. The first nine verses kind of go together and then... Verses 10 through 14 kind of go together. And the first verse of chapter 13 is almost a commentary or a conclusion to those two thoughts. But the message this morning, it's really pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. The first thing that we'll see in this chapter is simply this. Jesus saves. This is a... a, Familiar refrain, this is, um, I mean, I, when I typed up the slide, I thought, this it's almost seems too simple to put up on there, you know, because we say that in church all the time, you know, particularly in Baptist churches, all the time. Jesus saves. We sing it. Uh, it's in many hymns. Well, there's a reason for that. It's the truth. Jesus saves. And I, I probably should have, I could have put in that phrase, only Jesus saves. When you start reading this chapter, you see who's speaking. And you see the things He's done. Thus declares the Lord. But then not just the Lord, He's the Creator of everything physical. He's the creator of everything spiritual. The Bible says right there at the beginning of this chapter, He founded the earth. He, he created the spirit of man. He is almighty. That's who's talking to us. So there's no need for us to wonder if there's a, a sufficient authority or sufficient standing to be saying the things that are said. It's God Almighty. It's Jesus Christ, the Lord of all creation. The, the one who 
was, who is, and who is to come. It's Jesus. And He has ultimate authority. And if there's any doubt in our minds about that truth, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Jesus speaking. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus saves. So you work your way through this first paragraph, or or these two paragraphs that make up the first section here, nine verses, and here's what you see. God has a great plan in store for His people Israel. He's going to cause them to become, He calls them a cup of staggering to the surrounding people. A heavy stone to the surrounding people. So the point is that all those who fight against Israel are just going to end up harming themselves. So, even from a geopolitical standpoint, you want to know why there's been some kind of inkling in the heart or minds of men who don't necessarily read their Bibles every day, yet they still have this tendency, hey, we probably need to align ourselves with Israel. That's not an accident. And it's really not a bad idea. Because the more you read how God's plan is going to unfold for Israel, for His people, the remnant, now I'm talking about the remnant of Israel, those who are saved in Israel. God's going to fight for His people. It says in in the text here, He's going to strike the horses of the nations with panic. He's going to strike the riders of the horses with madness. Every horse will be struck with blindness. And yet... God's going to have His eye open for His people. He's going to be on the lookout, so to speak. He, he's going to serve. Back in the Old Testament, when in, in Ezekiel and even before that, when, when God was warning someone to stand on the wall and, and look and be, be the, the first alarm to sound in case there was a threat against the people, God's going to take that task on Himself. He says, I'm going to keep my eyes open so that anyone who is going to be encroaching or threatening on His people, Israel, He's going to handle that situation. There will be panic, madness, blindness among those who encroach upon Israel. He's going to consume the enemies of Israel. It says here in the text that He's going to cause them to be a blazing pot in the midst of wood. You know what happens when fire hits wood? Burns up. Then He says, a a flaming torch among the sheaves. Instant fire. They will devour all the surrounding peoples. The Bible says, to the right, to the left, all the surrounding peoples. They'll devour them. And then, as a result, Jerusalem will again be inhabited by the remnant of Israel. God's people. From the very beginning. You see this phrase over and over in the Old Testament. When God refers to Himself, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the way back to Genesis 12. A covenant that was made. But 
as we near the end of this first section, you see the most direct statement about our first point here today. Jesus saves. And what does the text tell us? Verse 7, the Lord will give salvation. The Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the glory of the house of David, the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem would not surpass that of Judah. Not only is He giving salvation, verse 8, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So even the weakest among those in Jerusalem will be like David. The same David who God used to stop a lion's mouth, to kill a bear, to kill Goliath, to be a mighty man of God. That's the weakest of the group will be like David. The house of David will be like God, it says in verse 8, like the angel of the Lord going before them. But lest we think there's no other implications for this truth without outside of Israel and Jerusalem and Judah. Look at verse 9. Remember, that I is God. I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Just a side note. If you're against the people that have God on their side, you're not winning. God protects His people. God will give salvation to His people. Jesus saves. That's why the Gospel is not just a New Testament phenomenon. The truth of Christ began in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. After sin came into the world because Adam and Eve rebelled against God and disobeyed His Word and believed the lies of the devil. They disobeyed the commandments. And the consequences that were handed out that you see in Genesis 3, there's consequences for the woman, there's consequences for the man, there's consequences for the devil. But when you see in chapter 3, verse 15, where God says there's going to be enmity between the seed of woman and the, the seed of the serpent, there's going to be uh, a bruising of the heel, but a crushing of the head of the serpent. That seed of woman is pointing us to Jesus. From the earliest part of Scripture, it was always Jesus. That, that phrase kept circulating in my brain, which is that's why I called this message, it was always Jesus. From the beginning of the Old Testament all the way to the end, it's always all about Jesus. Jesus gives salvation. Jesus protects His people. Jesus saves. So when we see this principle and we see the text of Scripture, how do we apply that to our lives today before we hit the last paragraph here? What's our personal application? Where are you in your life today? Where do you stand with God? What are you looking to as your salvation? On what have you trusted your eternity?
Is it something other than Jesus Christ, the Messiah? Is it, is it someone or something other than Jesus? Because this is not a situation where you want to rely on that principle that we began with, hindsight's twenty twenty. Because it, it will be. But by the time you can use that phrase, it will be too late. The time to trust in Jesus is now. The time to trust in Jesus was yesterday, last week, last month, last year. It, it's, and, and if it wasn't then, it's now. Why is it that so many churches and, and so many preachers preach and teach and try to read and explain the Word of God and apply it to our lives and then, at the end, call for a decision, give an invitation and say, I don't know what you're struggling with today, but Jesus is the answer. I don't know what you need today or what you lack, but Jesus can give it to you. More particularly, Jesus can give you forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And He's the only one that can do that. The Gospel is good news because it tells the story of Jesus, His life and His death and His resurrection and His ascension and who He is and why that matters. We have destroyed the harmony that existed between God and man. I say we because Adam and Eve are our representatives. Sometimes we look back at history and think, I can't believe Eve, why did she do that? That was so silly. And then we come to our senses and say, no, why did Adam allow that to even happen instead of stomping that snake into oblivion? I mean, it's a talking snake. There's something wrong with that. Right? It's not normal. Adam was the only human being on earth when God gave out commands. Let's not forget that. The only reason Eve knew what was going on and how we should relate to God is because Adam told her. Because Eve was not in existence when God laid out the plan. So Adam, what's up, man? You just completely blew it. You know, get a rock, get a stick, do something, kill the snake. Kill the snake. You don't allow that conversation to happen. And by the way, that's the way sin always starts with a conversation. And it goes something like this. Did God really say... Fill in the blank. Did God really mean that? Is that really what that means? Because that sounds way too harsh. That's too difficult. Surely not. Maybe he meant this. This sounds a lot more attractive. See, that conversation sends people to hell. Because when God handed out his instructions, he did not stutter, and he meant what he said and said what he meant. And any difference from what he said is our misinterpretation and our unwillingness to do what he says. So There's no other place to put that blame 
other than ourselves. God knew what He was doing when He told us what to do. When He told Adam the situation and how he was to relate to God, it was exactly as it should have been. When Adam and Eve rebelled, and both of them are equally to blame, when they did that and brought sin into the world, God was not caught off guard because His plan from the beginning was Jesus. You know how I know that? Because the Bible calls Jesus the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus was never plan B. And by the way, God doesn't need a plan B because His plan A works. We, we just have a, a tendency to mess that up or to not listen or to think, oh, I know better than God. Yeah. How's that working for us? Not too good. Yeah. Jesus saves. Only Jesus saves. Number two, Jesus heals. Jesus heals. When you get to the second half of this chapter, or, the, or the, I should say the last third, what you see is how God has defended His people from enemies outside of His people. Right? But now God's going to do something within His people. Because when His people finally realize they have neglected the one and only Messiah, the provision that God sent forth for sin, it's going to be a terrible moment of realization. Because if you look at verse 10, and you see what happens, and, and how it's worded, God says, I'm going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and a plea for mercy, so that... When they Now look at this. Look at the words. When they look on Me, on Him whom they've pierced. I don't know how I can visualize this um, sufficiently. Can you imagine people in Jerusalem on that day in the future? When they see Jesus, when they see scars, and they realize, oh no, how did we not see that? How did we miss? He was right here, He was in Jerusalem. He was standing right here in front of us. How did we miss it? He was right there. We, we could have just trusted Him and believed in all the, the signs and wonders and miracles. We could have... He, he fed 5,000 men and all the women and children. He, he brought Lazarus back from the dead. He turned water into wine. He, he calmed the storm. How are we so stupid? 
How could we not believe? They will look on Him whom they have pierced and they will mourn as if for a firstborn child, an only child, the only Son of God. They'll weep bitterly because there will be a day of realization when those who were there, those whose families were there years and years before, the remnant of Israel, because, by the way, if you, if you aren't aware, if you are a, a devout Jew, you are still waiting for a Messiah who happened to be here 2,000 years ago. But because you didn't believe in that one, you're still waiting for something that's not going to happen. It's already happened. The next time He comes back, it will not be as a baby in a manger. It will be majestic, triumphant, mighty warrior on a horse, leading the armies of God, and then it will be too late. They will look on Him whom they have pierced. They'll mourn. They'll weep bitterly. Verse 11 is an interesting little interjection there. We'll get to that in just a second. But when this remnant of Israel realizes what has happened, see, this is how we know kind of a, a time frame here of what, of what these events mean. Because... You think about this, uh, James Boyce wrote a fabulous commentary about this. He says, no one can pierce or wound God, right? Not unless God first takes on human flesh and dwells among us. Indeed, this is the meaning. This is what happened in Jesus Christ. He is God with us. He's God come to die. Just as Isaiah declared... In Isaiah 53, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That's Jesus. Isaiah wrote that 750 years before Jesus was born. That's Jesus. The Old Testament looks forward to Jesus. So, you read verse 10 and, and you start to see this is not good. This is not good for Israel. Verse 11 talks about the degree of mourning. There's this mention of Hadad, Rimon. Um, back in the Old Testament, there was this belief that this was a um, like a storm god, like a storm deity, and that that deity uh, was killed or died, and that's why they were having drought, and that supernaturally somehow this storm god came back to life and that's how they were able to have rain in the season when they needed it so when that particular the god that people thought 
was the cause of rain or no rain. When that God died, there was universal, national mourning and weeping because they thought, oh no, we have no way to get rain and we, all our crops are going to die. We're going to you know, be in ter- terrible trouble. And so the, the degree of mourning culturally is compared to that because they saw that as that's the end of our existence. We can't grow food. We can't eat. We can't eat. We'll die. And, and the source of our rain is gone. That's the degree of sorrow and weeping and mourning. And then in the last few verses, 13 and 14, you see every family group, the whole land is mourning. It mentions several, David, Nathan, Levi. It mentions these family groups, the whole land is going to mourn because they realize they have killed their Messiah. But that's not the end. That's why you keep reading. Chapter 13, verse 1, God's going to open up a fountain of cleansing for His people, to cleanse them from their sin. Right? And how exactly does that happen? Well, this is where we get to the end and we have to draw some conclusions. We have to decide what we're going to do based on what this text says. What does it mean? Not just what does it mean, but what does it mean for us? Rather than reinvent the wheel, I want to read you a portion of something I read this week from James Boyce. I think this makes really good sense of what we have just studied. He writes, It's certain there has not yet been uh, a national repentance by Israel, nor an enjoyment of blessings mentioned here. And if this is the case, then the battle referred to in Zechariah 12, 1-9 points us to the last great battle of Armageddon. And the repentance of verses 10-14 through 14 points us to a time of national salvation prior to the second coming of the Lord. It would be hard to find a more complete treatment of the events of the end times in all of Scripture than this chapter. Perception of these truths come about, though, by the power of God's Holy Spirit. For it's only as God pours out a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy that the repentance and turning that's depicted in these verses will occur. It's only by the power of God's Spirit that these things occur anywhere with anyone. But where the Holy Spirit is present, there is first a mourning for personal and national sin. And then a turning from that sin to look in faith to the Lord Jesus. It's this look of repentance. Only a sight of the crucified Christ will show us our sin. It's also a look of faith, for only He can bless and save, and He saves everyone who believes. It's a look of peace and adoration because His love is infinite and it doesn't change and it's all-powerful. 
It's the look which never ceases and never ends. Because now the veil's torn. Taken away. And we, with open eyes, behold the glory of the Lord. And we're changed into His image from glory to glory. So here's what all of this means for us. As it is for Israel, so it will be with us. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus saves. Jesus heals. Do you need healing? Run to Jesus. Do you need salvation and forgiveness? Run to Jesus. Do you need compassion, care, encouragement, peace, joy? Run to Jesus. It sounds almost too good to be true or too easy. It is simple, but it's not easy. The answer has always been Jesus. I don't know how else to say it. We need Jesus. Let's pray. this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.